Welcome to the Retirement Risk Show, the best retirement interviews and advice with Dave Hall. Learn strategies to help you reduce and even eliminate the risks facing your retirement. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show. My name is Dave Hall. I am your host. We are back again talking about the longest self-imposed period of unemployment most of you will face in your lifetime. It could be 10 years. It could be 20. Heck, it might even be 30 or 40. It is what we call retirement. If you are looking to get safely through retirement, please go to my website where you'll get access to all of our education tools. You'll get access to our live events. You'll get access to all the information that we have available to help you deal with the various risks that you're going to face during those years. Today, we are once again talking about Social Security. I know we've covered it for a number of weeks now, but it's because it's so important. It's something that 96% of us are going to use in our retirement. It's a program that's become very vital to the safety and security of our retirees. To help me with this today, I brought in Nancy Altman. She is the president of Social Security Works. Nancy, there's so much I could share about you, but let me bring you on and I'm going to let you share a little more about yourself. Nancy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. The real overview is that I'm a lawyer. I graduated from law school in 1974, the year that the Employee Retirement Income Security Act was enacted. So I got very involved. I was in a private law firm working on private pensions. Then I decided to go to uh, Capitol Hill to work for a senator from Missouri, John Danforth, who was on the Finance Committee, just as the 1977 Social Security Amendments were going through. So I got both sides. Then in 1982, I became Alan Greenspan's assistant on the so-called Greenspan Commission that made the recommendations that resulted in the 1983 amendments. At that point, I met three men who started in Social Security in the 1930s, longest-serving commissioner, the longest-serving actuary, and Wilbur Cohen, who became secretary at that time, HEW, and just launched. So I've been working on this for half a century, and as you say, I've written four books on the subject and numbers of articles to educate people and inform people about this program that, as you say, works so well and provides so much important source of retirement income in addition to um, disability insurance and life insurance. Nancy, one of the topics that we've not covered a lot on this show, we've covered anything from the program running out of money, and I refer to it as going broke, but it'll never go broke. We've talked about claiming strategies, but we've never got into the history so much. And you've written a book on the history. So uh, with that, I'd like to spend quite a bit of our time today talking about where the program started, what got us to where we are today. So it gets brought about 1935, but can you give us some more details of why the program gets put in place? And then we'll talk about the transition that's happened over the years. Absolutely. So it it was enacted in 1935, and I mentioned those three men. Two of them started working on Social Security in 1934 because they were part of the President Roosevelt, the Democratic administration that developed the proposal that became the Social Security Act of 1935. And they lived the history. So it got me very, very interested in the history. As you know, 1935 was in the midst of the Great Depression, but the Social Security program, although it was enacted in the middle of the Great Depression, it was not enacted for the Depression, for immediate assistance for people who lost their employment. Let me just say, unlike today, when the unemployment rate really talked about the workers who were unemployed and about one third were unemployed at the height of the Depression, but it really covered three generations because obviously the workers' children were without income. 
But in addition, at that time, virtually all people as they aged, if they couldn't continue to work, they moved in with their adult children who cared for them. Now, if you didn't have adult children, you literally went to the poorhouse, which was every state but New Mexico had poorhouses that were mainly people who had worked independently their whole lives. But when they got to be 60, 65, 70, and couldn't continue to work and didn't have family that could support them, they literally went to the poorhouse. To alleviate all the hardship that was caused by the Depression, there was in the Social Security Act a number of means-tested welfare programs. But the concept behind Social Security was that once the country was out of the Depression, in good times and bad times, we needed a system where people could work after their lives and retire with independence and dignity, not have to go hat in hand to their families and certainly not have to go to poor houses. And I believe from the statistics I saw that about 50% of the retirees were living below the poverty level at the time it was brought about. Is that a correct statistic? That is exactly right. There were not the same kind of data collection as we have now, but the best information that we have from that is about one out of two was unemployed. And interestingly, a number today look at Center for Budget and Policy Priorities, which is a, a think tank in Washington, puts out reports about what would happen if Social Security disappeared. And they find that about one out of two of seniors would once again return to poverty. So Social Security really has made the difference. It's transformed the nation. Interesting. And we talk about that and the stuff that we teach. We say that 68% of America, their biggest concern now is running out of money in retirement. 50% will. And if you take the statistic you just gave, that really matches up saying those that run out, Social Security becomes your only source of income, which means if it goes away, hey, you have nothing, you're below those poverty levels, you're in a bad position. Well, we go back to 1935. This all gets enacted by President Roosevelt. Everything gets put in place. Ida Jean Fuller gets the first check going on continually. Uh, Ernest Ackerman, he gets the first one-time check, gets like a 300% return on his five-cent investment. He gets 17 cents back. But we've transitioned substantially over the years. Can you talk a little bit about the transitions as we go from this uh, program that's trying to get the elderly off of the poverty rolls into really a, a good retirement system that we have today? Yes. When President Roosevelt signed Social Security into law on August 14, 1935, he called it a cornerstone in a structure which is being built but is by no means complete. And by that, he meant some talk about how large to make the benefits, how to extend it to the entire population, how big a program to start with. And his concern was it was too important to fail. And this was a huge undertaking the government had never taken before, this kind of enormous um, nationwide program where you were collecting insurance contributions from so many and then keeping all the charge. And there are fascinating stories about how you, the Social Security card and how the records get kept and so forth, because you know there were dozens of John Smiths. How do you keep them all apart? You know, whose record is right? And how can you update them every week or every month? So there were all those kinds of issues. So he wanted to start incrementally, but he understood that it was, as he put it, a cornerstone. So just four years later in 1939, spousal benefits and survivor benefits were added. It really became a family program. Then we had World War II and the 1940s, not much was done on Social Security. But in the 1950s, disability insurance was added. And then in 
1965, Medicare was included, which, as you know, it's part of the uh, contribution, the FICA contribution goes to the Hospital Insurance Trust Fund, the Part A of Medicare. So it's part of the Social Security Act. And the concept there was that you couldn't be really independent in retirement if you were one medical shock away from bankruptcy. So we got Medicare. And then in 1972, the program was indexed. So we have automatic cost of living adjustments once you begin to collect benefits so that your standard of living doesn't erode if you live 10, 20, 30 years, the, the purchasing power is retained. But that's when progress stopped. And so that really encapsulates what happened. We can go into what caused the shortfall in 1980 that resulted in 1983 amendments and what is causing the projected current shortfall. But again, that was really the way the program has grown. And my understanding, a lot of that shortfall in the 80s really sprung up on them a little more than our shortfall now is due to financial conditions in the market. Uh, Would you agree with that? Yes. I mean, there was the long-term shortfall, which was the baby boom retiring. That was the baby boom was just getting into its working years. So there was that followed by the baby bust. So everyone knew that the 1990s were going to be a very robust period for Social Security because you had the Depression era babies and World War II babies, which were slow both birth rates, retiring, and the baby boom in their peak earning years. So that would be a great time, but that would be followed by the baby boom retiring and the baby bus supporting them. So that sort of gets us where we are on that, where we up to date. But because older ones may remember or may have read about, there was a so-called Yom Kippur War, where the big war in the Middle East, the United States sided with Israel, and the OPEC nations decided they were going to embargo gasoline, and there were huge gas lines. We had, for the first time in American history, what was called stagflation, which you had very high inflation, double-digit inflation, and very high unemployment, double-digit unemployment. And since it's a current-funded program, you had lots of money going out because of the double-digit inflation, because it had just been indexed 1972. And so 1973 was when this OPEC war was. And then very high unemployment, so not as many workers contributing. And as a consequence, we had a very large short-term problem. In fact, at one point, it looked like Social Security would not be able to pay benefits in about 18 months. So there was that short-term issue and then the long-term issue of the baby boom. And they were able to fix it, which is great. It's not really slotted to run out of trust fund money now until 2033, 2034, 2035, depending on the year that the trust fund report comes out. So they did a pretty good job. But now we've got the same problem again, different situations led into it. Nancy, why do you think we're being so slow to fix the issue now? I mean, it's something I got in the industry in 1995. From the day I hit the turf as a new CPA, people were saying the program's going to run out of money. You need to find some other way to plan for retirement. And you know, here we are uh, 28 years later saying, hey, we've got the same issue, but there's still money there and we can have benefits. Why are we kicking the can down the road so far? I think I know exactly why, but And let me just say one other thing as a lead up to today's shortfall, that when the Social Security Amendments of 1983 were enacted, the trustees, as they do every single year, as you know, there's a board of trustees, the money is kept in two trust funds, and every year by law, starting back in 1941, benefits were first paid in 1940, 
there's always been a, a trustees report and they project out 75 years, three quarters of a century, which is a very, very long valuation period. But they did that back in 1983 and they said, okay, we're in uh, social security is restored to actuarial balance for the next 75 years, which gets us to 2057. So why is it 2034, not 2057? And the reason is because the one thing that was not anticipated at that time was the enormous income inequality where the top 10% earnings grew by about 35%. I think the bottom by about 1.6% sort of a stagnation. And because the, the program is indexed by average wages, it literally billions of dollars have been lost to social security every year because those at the top are not paying as much as Congress expected them to pay if there had been wage increases that had been equal across the board. So now the question, though, of, well, why haven't they acted? You're right. They've been projecting this since the 1990s. And I think the reason is that until recently, members of both parties wanted to do or felt they had to do what the American people didn't want. And that was what they called a bipartisan package with some revenue increases, which the Republicans were against, and some benefit cuts, which the Democrats were against. So they had this idea they should get together behind closed doors, come up with a package, and all hold hands and jump. President Bill Clinton tried to do this with the Speaker Newt Gingrich, and that got sidelined because of the impeachment where everything stopped with Monica Lewinsky and so forth. Then President Bush, to his credit, actually introduced a proposal, his privatization proposal, but it was not what the American people wanted, and that was rejected. But I think too many learned the wrong lesson from that, and that was, oh, well, I guess we better not talk about this in public. So you then had the Bull Simpson Committee in 2010 and the Super Committee in 2011, all of these attempts to go behind closed doors and do what the American people do not want. Because as polarized as the American people are on so many issues, we are not polarized about Social Security. Whether you're a MAGA Republican or you're a member of a labor union, you across the board think Social Security is more important and that will be more important than ever, which is correct. They, you do not want to see it cut and that you'd like to see it expanded and that you want the wealthy to pay more, but you're willing to pay more yourself. There's lots of polls out doing that. And the good news is that the Democrats have now turned to that position. That was always Senator Bernie Sanders' position, the most progressive member of the Senate. When he ran for president, he ran in part on that issue. Secretary Clinton, who was running against him, said, wait, wait, I'm for that too. And that became part of the platform. And there now Representative John Larson, who's a moderate Democrat from Connecticut, has introduced something he calls the 2100 Act because it's to get Social Security restored to balance through the year 2100. And if you can believe it, in the last Congress, he had 200 Democratic co-sponsors. Unfortunately, no Republican co-sponsors, but Democratic co-sponsors, which is almost half the House. My view is that if we have this discussion in the, the public, the Republican elected Republicans are going to have to come around to at least no cuts, perhaps not expansion, but at least no cuts, 
because that's what their voters want as well as the Democratic voters. But I think the reason we've had no action is that both parties have been trying to jam through a package that has benefit cuts, and that's bad policy, but more importantly, it's not what the American people want. This is so interesting to me as you go through this process, and you brought up a topic through it that I'd never really thought much about, and that is that income equality. And if you've got $100 and you've got 10 people each getting $10 and everybody's paying an equal share into a program, that works out pretty well. If you've got 10 people and one of them's getting 50 of the dollars and the other nine are spreading out the remaining 50, uh, that creates problems into the program. And I, I get what you're saying from that side and, and makes sense. And this closed door thing is unfortunate as we look at what's going on. I know I think it was Malcolm Gladwell uh, kind of pushed the issue on Newt Gingrich saying, hey, he was the one that pushed everybody back to their districts and said, hey, let's not stay in Washington and have our kids playing baseball on the same teams, going to the same churches, being friends. Now we don't see each other so much, so it's easy to almost be enemies of each other when it comes to politics versus trying to get together. And obviously, Social Security is being impacted by that. Before the show, we talked a little bit about some others I've had on my show, one being Andrew Biggs, another one, David Walker. And I know you had mentioned that you have some different philosophies on solving the problem of Social Security. And I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Again, this show is to really just talk about strategies and hopefully get people together to come up with solutions. And we're not going to be the ones that fix the problem, but at least we can have our say and our, our opinions as we go through there. Would you like to share some of your thoughts of, of what we do from here to try to get where we need to be? Yes. I think as important as restoring Social Security to long-range balance is, that we should recognize that it's a means to an end. The goal is to have basic economic security. The conversation about Social Security, particularly in Washington, is in uh, green eye shades. It's a, a math equation. And of course, you have to balance income and outgo, but you shouldn't do that as just a, an exercise on paper. You should really be thinking about what are the goals of the program and what are we trying to accomplish so as we've talked about, it, the point of the program is to provide basic economic security. As we talked in the beginning, you don't want to have someone retire after a long work career and immediately have to move in with their families or sell where they live and move into another place. You want to be able to maintain your standard of living. That's why traditional pensions and social security focus on replacement rates. What percentage of income do you get from the program in comparison to your final pay? Most experts think we need about 70% of your final pay. You don't need 100% because you're no longer saving. You don't have work expenses, but you need about 70%. If you're lower income, you need a higher percentage because you have less discretionary income. If you're higher income, you can start to dissave, so you might need a little less, but somewhere around 70%. Social Security does provide a larger replacement rate to lower income people, higher benefits to those who have contributed more and have higher salaries, but higher replacement rate for those who are at the bottom, which makes it what's called a progressive formula. But even then, someone making about forty dollars or $50,000 only has about a 40% replacement of that amount. Someone making $80,000 is closer to 25 or 30%, nowhere near the 70%. So what I believe we should do and what the Democrats now 
see as well, and the Democratic Party is united about this, is that we need to increase that percentage. We need to increase the benefits, especially with the disappearance of traditional pensions and the proven inadequacy of savings plans. So that's where I would start. And then the question is, well, how do you most fairly contribute to pay the cost? So you do have long-range actuarial balance. Social Security has three sources of revenue. Its primary source are the FICA contributions by employees matched dollar for dollar by their employers. That is proportionate 6.2% up to a maximum of $160,200, which is the maximum for 2023. That's one source. And then it's regressive for those above and below because you pay zero on that over anything over $160,200 of earnings. The second is from the beginning, if Social Security had additional, it's current funded, but if it brought in more remy than it had to pay out, the money was kept in reserve in a trust fund and that money is invested. So there's investment income, which makes up about 5% of Social Security's income. And there's only one progressive source of revenue, and that is the counting benefits as income for purposes of federal income taxation, the same way that uh, private pensions are treated. But the difference is that instead of the money going to the general fund, it's shifted back into funding Social Security. The one progressive source is only 3% of the revenue. Given the enormous income and wealth inequality, my view is that we should increase that 3% by just a little bit. We could have a surtax on millionaires and billionaires. We could have a dedicate the estate tax to Social Security as the longest running commissioner of Social Security, Robert M. Ball, proposed. There are lots of sources of revenue. There's plenty of wealth. And the question is a really a political question. What is the fairest way to distribute that, to distribute the burden to pay the cost? Representative John Larson, not his most recent bill, but in an earlier bill, had a very gradual rate increase so that over about 20 years, the 6.2% would increase by a small amount. That would spread the cost to everyone. There's plenty of money in the um, country is wealthy enough. Current programs, 5% of gross domestic product. We're talking about going up to 6% of gross domestic product at the end of the centuries which is much less than many other countries spend on their social security counterpart programs today. So there's no question we can afford it. It's a question of values. And the American people highly value this program. And that's what I think the, uh, I think our politicians, who after all, we elect them, they work for us. We don't work for them. I think they should, should do what the American people, in this case, overwhelmingly want. Nancy, such great comments. I cannot believe our time is gone. It, it goes so quickly when we talk on these topics at one of my favorite parts of the week. Nancy, before we wrap up here, uh, can you provide some information on how people can learn more about what you're doing and get access to the resources, tools you have available? Yes, we have a website, which I love our name because it, it basically says what we believe, which is Social Security Works. <laughs> so it's socialsecurityworks.org. You go to socialsecurityworks.org and you can sign our list. And if you do, we send out, unfortunately, there, there's a lot of fundraising because we're a nonprofit organization, but we provide a lot of important information. We're constantly 
We're following the debt limit very closely to make sure that they keep their promise to not cut Social Security as part of some kind of debt limit deal. And if people want to know exactly what's happening, we have up to the minute information. Well, thank you so much. Listeners, you have been listening to the Retirement Risk Show. If you would like to learn more about what Nancy's doing, socialsecurityworks.org. If you'd like to learn more about how to get safely through retirement, go to my website, retirementriskadvisors.com. I'll look forward to being back with each of you again next week where we'll tackle another topic uh, regarding the various risks that you're going to face during those retirement years. And that's today's episode. Thanks for listening. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to wherever you get your podcast. We come out with a new episode every Friday morning and you don't want to miss it. The Retirement Risk Show is a production of the Retirement Risk Advisors. Our show was produced by C.R. Talene and Autumn Koenig. If you're a CPA looking for more retirement education, visit retirementriskadvisors.com.